evening, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. So tonight I thought I'd look at this aspect of the Dhamma that is those of you who have been following and keeping up with the things I teach might no, might remark upon the fact that I often refer to different ways of looking at the world. That our ordinary way of looking at the world is not sufficient for the cultivation of insight. And the reason why we aren't able to find the truth is caused at least in part by our not just misunderstanding of the world but totally wrong way of looking at it it's like if you look at a hockey stick in terms of being a a hammer. You'll, you'll never really figure out what the hockey stick is for. It's not just that you don't know how to use it as a hammer, it's that it's not a hammer. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's one thing to not have the right way to practice. You know, once you figure out the right way to look at the world, you can still practice wrongly. But you can't practice at all. You can't cultivate, you can't progress at all from our point of view if you're looking at the world in the wrong way. It's like you put on hockey, hockey skates and then run around on the pavement and wonder why you're not flowing like those other hockey players. That's not where you use the skates. Skates are not for pavement. You've got something wrong there. Another example. It's an old joke. I don't know where it originated. I heard it when I was young. I read it in a book once. Kid's book. The story, it's a skit, and um, the, the MC of, during a talent show, he does this joke. So he comes out on stage, crawling out on stage. There's two MCs. The one MC crawling out on stage, peering at the floor. And the other MC comes out and says, what are you, what are you looking for? And he says, I lost my contact, my contact lens. And the first guy says, or the second guy says, oh no, he gets down and he starts helping him look for it. And they're both crawling all around the stage looking for this contact lens. And he said, you dropped your contact lens out here? And the first guy says, no, I dropped it backstage, but the light's up better out here. Yeah, this is a kind of a clever joke. But it's funny because of how how wrong-headed it is. And that that man will never find the contact lens on the stage. 
You'll never find the truth if you're looking in the wrong place. It's an important sort of concept to understand. You can look as hard as you want. Those guys could have been out there on the stage for hours looking for that contact lens, and they wouldn't find it. No matter what sophisticated instruments they used, no matter how much effort they put out, they're not going to find that contact lens. So let's talk about the different ways of understanding. So, so my the, the introduction here was sort of do to address this potential question that people might have. Hey, you say that there's different ways of looking at the world. What what basis do you have to say that from a Buddhist perspective? Because you might think I never read that in Buddhism. What is the what did the Buddha have to say about this? So the Buddha switched between these ways of looking at the world, as we all do. It's not, I'm not, we're not trying to say that you have to always look at the world. Lumpo Chodok, this guy up here on, the, on, on my left, no, my right. Um, he said... He said, you know, we teach you about this way of looking at the world. So we teach you about rupa and nama. Rupa and nama is the first. This, this is the, the changing of the way we look at the world. When you see that rupa and nama are all that exist. What is rupa? Rupa is the, the physical. What is nama? Nama is the mental. So Javan, when you walk around, who walks? Rupa or Nama? Hmm. Rupa is the is the physical. Rupa is doesn't know anything. Rupa isn't aware of anything. Nama is what's aware. Rupa is Rupa or Nama when you walk around. Hmm. Hmm. No, it's not a trick question. Nama walks? Where does Nama go? Does Nama have legs? Mm -hmm. You better think about that one. It's, anyway, he, so he would talk about these sorts of things and he said, but I don't want you to go home and say to your wife, hey, when, when your wife or husband, when your partner comes comes and says, hey, honey, you're home. And, oh, don't call me honey, it's just Rupa and Nama. It's no me. No, you say, yes, yes, I'm home. The Buddha switched between these different ways of looking at the world. And they're enumerated as three. And so this is sort of orthodox Buddhist theory. There are three lokas. The first loka is called Satta loka. Loka means world, but it's world in a more encompassing sense than we use it today. I mean, we use it uh, figuratively to mean everything. But usually if we're pressed to define it, 
in modern times we'll say, well, that's just the earth, right? When we talk about the way of the world, we're not talking about how things work on Mars or in the center of the sun. But loka in Buddhism is more all-encompassing. So it's maybe translated as universe or world in a, in a more figurative sense, being just everything, the whole, the entirety. There's three ways of understanding this. Think of it as the, the framework, because this is what it is. Loka is a type of framework. So when you think about sattaloka, satta means being. So we have the framework of beings. Beings are different types of being. A being is a human being. Satta, a creature maybe. Satta is a being that comes into existence. Not just any type of being like being a tree or being a rock. It's a sentient being, a satta. So when we talk about the world, when we talk about worldly affairs, world politics, we're not talking about the politics of trees or rocks. When we talk about globalization, we're talking about the travel of beings, not the traveling of trees or mosquitoes. Globalization, well, generally it's referring to people. And so much of our, our lives is, is in this framework, our interpersonal relations. Our solutions for our problems are related to how to enforce laws, uh, how to uphold cultural norms, engage in religious activities, practices. If you study religion, a lot of religious studies is simply focused on this, the anthropology of it, the study of people. How do people get together? It's kind of an odd way from a Buddhist perspective to think about religion. I've been studying it and it's it's interesting because it makes it more universal if i can take a bit of a tangent religion is i think very important because um, it, it it it's in all of us religion is not simply belief in a god or practice of rites and rituals belief is religion is whatever you take seriously so we're all a little bit religious and studying it Studying how people act, studying people is interesting. But when it's just focused on individuals, you've got a bit of a problem. Because if you're looking at the world from this point of view, you're looking at the entire being. You're looking at people. Uh, then you're generally not trying, not thinking that you're going to change those individuals. You know, on the level of in, on the level of people, you're dealing with entities. So a person has preferences. You know, we do acknowledge that habits can change, that people can change. 
But when we start to acknowledge that we're no longer dealing with individuals, we're dealing with, with some other realm. Um, we're talking about people being mysteriously malleable. Well, what is that mystery? That mystery is where Buddhism starts to come into play, but just to focus first on beings. The, the beings part of our understanding and the way when we look at it in terms of beings, we, we think of this person or that person and we think of their quality. We might say, oh, that person has a bad temper. Or, oh, that person is so nice to me. I love that person. I'm going to marry that person. I'm going to marry and, and live with that person forever and ever. Because they're so wonderful. And we get conceptions of people. This person, this Buddhist teacher, is he's, he's number one. He's my root guru and I'm going to stick with him for the rest of my life. The problem is, these things don't exist. They're based on some other framework of reality that then is conceived of in our minds. Now, our perceptions of people are say, say a lot more, well, often say a lot more about ourselves than they do about others. You know, we we create images of beings, and. If I look at this room, I see a bunch of people very quiet, and I think, wow, these guys are really good meditators. But I bet if I could see into their minds, boy, oh boy, I, my, my illusions of, of the kind of person they are would often be shattered. Reality is one thing. It's something different from, from beings, because beings aren't static. Beings don't have qualities, uh, or, or um, beings have qualities, but the reality behind the beings are only habits, are only patterns that change. This is important because as long as you're stuck on the idea that, oh, I have this problem, oh, I'm such this person, that person, I, I'm addicted to this, when you turn it into an addiction, no. When when you make it out to be a thing, rather than trying to understand it, like take Alcoholics Anonymous for example. Alcoholics Anonymous is quite useful and practical, but they will tend to focus on the idea that I'm an alcoholic. You know, they'll say you have to remind yourself I'm an alcoholic, and that's all fine and good to, to accept and acknowledge and to stop trying to pretend that you don't have a problem is good. But it's not precise, and it's still got the problem of not acknowledging that there is a, a pattern of behavior that can be unraveled. I mean, not to diss Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's sound, from the sounds of it, it's a really useful and good thing that does help people overcome their problems. But they'll tend to say things like, I know that I'm still an alcoholic so many years later, which is kind of, from a Buddhist point of view, it's just, you mean all those years of Alcoholics Anonymous and nothing changed? I, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's not, but it's an example. You know, 
regardless, I don't want to pick on something that's actually apparently quite useful for a lot of people. But um, regardless, there is this aspect of our way of looking at the world. We get into this framework where we look at beings as being entities that are static. And it's not real, it's, it's illusory. And it prevents us from, because we're, no, we're not focusing on what's really going on. We say, I have a short temper, for example. I'm an introvert. I'm an agoraphobic or, or a thisophobic, a thataphobic. I have clinical depression or so on. I'm autistic, you know, Asperger's. I have Asperger's, for example. It's not to say that there's not something going on there, but you reifying it like that. Uh, it says nothing or very little about reality. It creates this boogeyman in your mind that um, the mental activity that's going on is, I mean, the consequences of focusing in that way are only going to exas exacerbate and prevent you, exacerbate the problem, prevent you from finding a solution. Not, not without its use, but not useful and not helpful for us. And uh, not just us as Buddhists or meditators, but us as human beings to solve our, our mental problems. But there are many... So th this kind of being is, is... This kind of world is the world of beings. There are human beings, there are hell beings, there are angel beings. There are all these types of beings in the world. I mean, our ordinary, in modern times, we don't have any recollection or conception of angels and, and devils and so on, ghosts. Very, very peripheral, if, if it's acknowledged at all. But still, we have many different types of beings. You know, take, we have white beings and black beings and, and Asian beings. Yellow, I think, is what they're called. They're sometimes derogatorily referred to. Which I always found kind of bizarre, but whatever. Suppose there were yellow beings or red beings. The the First Nations people in Canada and America are called red. Uh, brown. The brown people in, in the Middle East, no, in South Asia, call themselves brown. They say, I'm a brown person. Uh, we have Jewish people. Jew Judaism is interesting. Be I grew up Jewish because it's not just a religion, it's also a culture. And so they are presented with elements of racism because they're considered to be, or what they call racism, is it not? Racism is a strange word. Uh, prejudice. Muslims, Muslims and anyone who looks like that, Sikhs apparently have been ostracized just because people think they're Muslims uh, or been, been subject to, to threat. Problem, what I'm trying to say is problems arise, divisions arise, conflicts arise. I mean, isn't it bizarre that we should treat people different based on their language, their color of their skin, the shape of their eyes, um, the shape of their bodies, whether they have breasts or whether they have this or that genitalia? Some of it's really bizarre how we, we've come to 
to reify these things. Because, well, having certain physical characteristics does have meaning. If a, if a person is a what we call a female person, they're going to have to, um, every month, they're going to have certain activities that they're going to have to perform. There's no question about that. For example, I mean, just to take a, a random example, uh, I mean, you could say that diff, um, African people have to use different hair products or they have to manage their hair differently than white people white European people but that's about as far as it goes and look at how much further we've pushed it to provide meaning where we see certain people as less than human or less human than other certain people where we have in the past certainly um, we've treated them differently and then even bringing that up then we say well there are also animal furry type of people and look at how we treat them differently. And we can say, yes, well, animals are different. They're not nearly as smart as humans. Okay, but that's all it is. I mean, they're not categorically different in the way that we think we are. They are. We would never hang a human up, most of us, would never hang a human up by its feet and run it down, a, uh, run it down uh, hanging it upside down uh, in front of a circular blade and just having its throat cut on a conveyor on a assembly line like they do with cows throwing humans into the back of pickup trucks and sending them pushing them out when you get to the abattoir some of these videos shooting humans in the head with a bolt gun it doesn't happen that often if you've ever been on a farm before farmers are some of the worst psychopaths I mean I think it's psychopathy that's just been bred into them or not bred but driven into them as a habit over the years when they were young they were taught and they were taught to repress the, the just the anguish that comes from torturing and killing your fellow human being your fellow beings we treat animals differently and they have to be treated to some extent differently but how differently and why differently and in what ways differently so the creating concepts has a whole host of issues we then associate these concepts with other concepts being uh, this religion that religion this this race that race it's associated with all sorts of things that these two things are just conceptual when in fact what you're looking at is physical qualities you're looking at light bouncing off of someone's skin or or um, you're looking at the the shape of someone's body or their eyes or their hair or so on they did a study some of you are probably familiar with this study of it's a really a terrible study where they separate people based on the color of their eyes and they treat them differently based on the color of their eyes. And it was just horrific, the sort of the results that come out and the prejudices that arise when you teach people to associate eye color with privilege and so on. Anyway, this is the first way of looking at the world that we use and we have to use practically speaking, but we abuse. And it's not 
useful for us. It's not the way we should look at things. That's very the conceptual way. The, 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 it's the world of people and places and things, of entities. This is where possessiveness comes from. My thing, my partner, you know, my son, my daughter, my mother, my father, and how much anguish and suffering comes when our thing doesn't act the way we want it to, when it changes. Meditators suffer this when they change through meditation and they go home and it's like the old person died. The parents and family members and friends just feel like that. Who are you? And it's true. Who are you? you, you your characteristics are... are changed in in fairly i mean much of you is still the same you can't change everything in one or two courses in meditation but some fairly profound shifts have gone on and so it is like the old person died which i think must sound kind of disturbing right it should disturb you it should disturb this illusion this illusory idea we have that beings exist I went back to my high school last year and it was really interesting meeting old classmates who are now teachers and meeting old teachers who are still there and uh, just remarking with them on how changed things are. I mean, going back as a Buddhist monk, is if, if, you, if you knew me then, how different. Change meditation is a good example because it does affect some drastic changes in a very in a relatively short time. To show you, I mean, because one of the things you learn in meditation, this being idea, it's just a convention, it's just a conception. The second type of world is called Okasa Loka. Okasa in this in this context means space. This is the physical world. This is when we think of world, I mean, much of the time, if we're not thinking about the world of beings, we're thinking about the world of space. This room, this house, this city, this country, this planet, this solar system, this galaxy, this universe, who knows how many universes there are. Maybe there's one, maybe there's more, I don't know. Space. And then you can go microscopic. You've got you know, cells, I guess, that start there. You've got, uh, or you know, bodies, let's say. You've got the body, and then you've got cells, and then you've got... Uh, what do they call cellular what do they call the things that make up a cell I can't remember and then oh, what's even more than that is you've got molecules and then when you go from molecules then you've got atoms atoms the word atom means individual indivisible but no it's not indivisible You've got subatomic particles, neutrons, protons, electrons. 
But oh, now you've got a problem there because we don't even know what those really are. What's an electron? Is it a particle? Is it a wave? There's ideas, I don't know. I'm not a quiz physicist. I'm not really brilliant about these things, but I have read a little bit enough to know that it's far from far from resolved what there really is same with out there out in this galaxy this solar solar system galaxy in the in the universe what's really out there well we know there's vacuum nothing right and then there's all these photons and stuff radiation but uh-oh, there's more that we, there's dark matter and dark energy. It must be something more out there. We still don't even know. That's not really the point, but it is interesting. It's important to shake up our conception of, of this. We say, oh yes, science knows all that. There's cells and so on. Mm, even cells, even molecules, even atoms, even subatomic particles are not really sure. the so the the issue with the physical world it's not exactly dealing with concepts well i mean a molecule or a cell that is a concept but it's a little more subtle than that i mean the world of space is highly useful if i want to go this morning um, someone a thai woman called me she's visiting from chiang mai one of my Chiang Mai Chom Tong, Chom Tong, the place where my teacher lives. She lives in the same town or city now, I guess, as my teacher. And she's here. She's in our province. So she's coming to see me um, Thursday, I think, Thursday. And uh, she wanted to know how, how long it takes. How It's about two hours to get from where I am to you. Are. And I said, oh, yeah, three at the most. So it, it, I said, well, ask Google. Google will tell you how long it takes. And uh, if, if how could Google do that if we didn't know any, if we didn't have space? If we didn't think of the world in terms of space. You know, as a meditator, you have this weird feeling that the world is moving around me. And the world revolves around me, right? Now, scientists would tell you, ah, 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 we this is a religious problem. They think that the sun revolves around the earth and all that stuff. But it's a different way of looking at things. Our perception of things is, well, when I walk out the door, the door just comes closer to me. It gets bigger. You know, the, 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 image, the image that I'm getting of a door gets bigger. The so this world of space is it's practical and useful, but the problem with it and why it's not really going to help us is because it's an extrapolation. It's not exactly a conception, but it's a still making more of things than they actual actually are. It's an abstraction. When you see a door or something, you know. 
you you talk with the door is a concept that's in the first type of world, but the second type of world, when you talk about there being anything, you know, this seeing is this and this is uh, has these qualities. You're seeing something is the point. You project a world out there as existing. You're still not focused on the experience of seeing. If I talk about that door, I don't think about it as being a door, but I, for words I need to use concepts, it's practical. If I talk about, okay, if I think in my mind that I want to go to the door because I want to go out, I have to process how I'm going to get up and go to the door. My mind at that time is involved in conceiving of distance, conceiving of space. It's involved in conceiving of a world out there. You know? At the same time, there's all this mental activity going on. There's the intention to stand up. There's the desire to get to the door, the goal, the objective. There is a focusing of my attention and all this. That has is not entering the mind. You're not you're not observing or aware of that, and so in that world, which you know I'm 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 leaking. This is the third world. There could be a lot going on. Maybe I'm worried. Maybe it's a knock at the door. Maybe it's the middle of the night. Maybe it's not a door. It's a window. And in the middle of the night, maybe someone's knocking on my window. And. Uh, I locked the door because I, I was concerned about this sort of thing. Maybe burglars or murderers. So I locked the doors. And now they're coming to my window. Can't get in the door, so they come to my window. Uh, and then you get, they can get very afraid of that when you're thinking about all these things. There's the sound, and the sound creates thought, and the thought creates fear because it's associated with well, what, what do you usually associate people banging on your window at the middle of the night with? Not, not friendly, not Mr. Rogers. And so, oh, you, there's a lot going on. But you're not focused on uh, what's happening you know, in the world. There being a person out there. And it's not so much about the person. That's another part. But here we're referring to the fact that there being something out there. The world out there, it's still external. And so a lot of problems arise from this because I can't make that person go away. I can't change the world out there. You know, I can't stop there from being poverty and famine and, and disease and natural disasters and these boys being trapped in a cave there are right now, as we speak, a group of 13 or so, I don't remember how many young boys trapped in a cave in Thailand. One kilometer under the ground, they, they were, I, I don't really, this, they were, um, they were chased there by the water. The cave flooded and they had to move back, move back, move back, I think. I don't, I didn't really follow the story. I assume this is what happened. And now they're stuck 
and the cave is now a tunnel of water and it's the monsoon season and it's a five hour swim to get to them five hours for an experienced diver and it's not it's not the mediterranean ocean it's 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 mud basically silt if you've ever seen rivers in thailand in the monsoon season they're brown they're just half dirt and so this is what they have to swim through half the boys don't know how to swim yeah so this these external realities let's take this as a good example what if you were trapped in a cave like that and the oxygen is running out and you might be dead in a couple of days no not a couple of days you might be dead in in not not too many days you might try to swim your way out with a air tank and drown one navy seal has already drowned trying to rescue them it's just a quite the situation a navy seal drowned trying to swim and they're contemplating making these young boys who can't even swim make the five-hour swim lots of things anyway it's not get off track but it's an interesting example because what would you do if you were going to die what if these boys do die no what do you do to help them the first thing you try to do is fix the problem you try and get them out and that's reasonable i mean there's no i would never suggest not to but in the broader picture this is what we're always trying to do we're trying to get ourselves out of flooded caves i mean i'm sorry to make light of it it's not it's a horrible situation but um when you step back i mean as a buddhist you do step back and you see it as part of samsara i mean there's even worse suffering going on and has gone on the tsunami in thailand was much worse the deaths there are far more horrific i don't know maybe this you could say is very horrific because of how slow it is and it's like you know it's going it's worse to know that you could be dead in a few days i suppose than to have it happen quite quickly regardless there's lots of different things that happen in samsara and we go on and on and on there's a story of monks who are trapped in a cave and uh, for seven days they went into this cave and a boulder fell over the like there was a landfall and they got stuck in this cave for seven days no food no water nothing they were just about to die and then after seven days there was another land you know the, the earth shifted again or something and and it was open and they could get out and they were so um weak they, they found water and drank and they managed to get some food and they made their way back to the buddha and they asked the buddha and the buddha talked about past lives how, how in the past lives the, these guys they trapped a a lizard in an in a termite mound plugged up all the holes thought it would be funny and then went their way 
And like seven days, then they remembered seven days later and they, they said, hey, wait, what about this? That lizard forgot to let it out. So they go back and let it out and they find, oh, it's still alive. And it sort of crawls out and maybe they feed it or give it water. Or maybe they just let it go and it survives. And it was, I mean, that's, that, that's the story, believe it or not. But we would want to, so we wouldn't want to say, oh, these boys, they're getting what, what's coming to them. But we do acknowledge that there's a bigger picture. And the bigger picture at the very least is that this is the way of life. This could happen to any of us. This or something subjectively worse. So solving things physically, all these physical solutions, they're actually, they have engineers there. SpaceX, this rocket ship company has gone in and is going to create a submarine or something. Um, all of these engineering master, you know, maybe the solution to our world's problems is to colonize Mars. You know, we did such a good job with this world. Let's go and try another one. They don't, they're missing something, right? They're missing something important. And so we take the psychological, they, they, the physical meets the psychological, because that's really what the third way of looking at the world is, it's psychological. When these two worlds meet, what do you do for these boys? Well, give them drugs. That's the solution. Maybe even no, I don't think so. But you could give them drugs. Actually, that's I'm not. I'm. I'm I think that's a bit crazy. But um, I, let's not go to the, go there because that's that's a bit bizarre. But for a, for a person dying of of an incurable disease, you certainly do give them drugs. You medicate them make them make their pain go away that's your solution to death to to pain really our solution to pain medication and then we extrapolate that i mean that's one thing that i find objectionable i find it objectionable to uh, rely on medic med medication to the extent that we do not to give medication to people in pain but to rely upon it. I find it objectionable that that's the best we can come up with. And the reason it's the best we can come up with is because we live in a physicalist society where people believe that um, the, the solution to our problems is found in the physical, that our problems come from the physical and so the solution has to be physical. And so it leads, it's led to the physicalization of mental illness. And so for depression, well, there's a drug for that. Anxiety, there's a drug for that. Psychoses, there's a drug for that. Neuroses of all kinds. Insomnia, there's a drug for that. So yeah, I mean, some insomnia is physical. There's something called sleep apnea, I think. Um, 
then yeah, you you, you just can't sleep because you snore yourself awake or something like that, or you stop you can't breathe, so you have to wake up to breathe. But you know, most insomnia is mental, and drugs are not the answer. Drugs are just like I'm incompetent, which most of us are. I'm not. It's not a ridicule, but I'm I'm incapable of solving the problem. So I'm going to shut off that part of my brain that's causing the problem. Shut off the part of my brain that's reacting, that's triggering the problem. Physical world is not going to solve our problems, not from a Buddhist perspective. I mean, it's not really, but our claim as Buddhists is that it's not. You know, it leads to this kind of world, a world where more and more people are taking medication, but more and more mental illness is cropping up, I would say. I think that's a fair assessment. We don't have less mental illness than 2,500 years ago, that's for sure. I would say we have probably more. They had the same sorts of problems. I just think it is exacerbated with a lot of the ways we've chosen to develop as as societies and so on. And so that's not the way of looking at the world. We have to stop thinking about getting to the door and start thinking about the experience involved with it. Someone's knocking at my window. What's going on? Sound has arisen. And the consciousness of that sound has also arisen. Together, they actually arise at the same time, pretty much. Or no, you could say there probably there was sound before there was experience, right? But you can't really call it sound without the experience. Anyway, there's an experience of sound. There's a perception of it being knocking at a window. There's lots of mental imagery of people in ski masks with knives or guns. There is fear. Fear has arisen. It arises not at the same time, but quite quickly. <laughs> quite soon after the, the knocking comes the fear. You know, there's there's a little more in there. There's the processing and the imagining of the murderer, mass murderer at the window. But that imagining arises, and then the fear arises. And then there's a lot more after that. There's a flurry of activity. What am I going to do? What should I do? Should I answer it? Should I turn off the light and pretend to be asleep? Should I go get someone else to, to deal with it? Should I call the police? Should I pretend I'm, should I tell them I'm going to call the police? What should I do? And so on. There's a lot of activity. A lot of things formed. A lot of formations. Real formations. What I mean is real things. There are realities coming to be. This isn't extrapolation anymore. That fear is not extrapolated. 
you're not just thinking that you're afraid. There's actually fear. Or there's something that we call fear, and it's a thing. It's, it's real. It's arisen. It's there. The sound, the sound was, was, was an experience. Now, you may have imagined it. You may be hallucinating, but that doesn't matter. You experience sound. You can experience sound without there being any sound. You know, meditators have this all the time. They'll be sitting and suddenly they'll hear. For me, it was Stairway to Heaven, I think, my foundation course. I kept hearing Stairway to Heaven over and over and over again. But you have an experience, an experience of, of seeing. You can close your eyes and see things, see monsters or still means there's there's a seeing is real if you see a monster doesn't mean the monster is real doesn't even mean there's a monster in the room with you it means that you saw there, there there was seeing this is called sankara loka and it's the third way of looking at the world or it's the third paradigm it's the third world and this one does help us. This one is as real as it gets. This is what Descartes was talking about. I always come back to him. I'm sorry because I don't really, I'm not really impressed by a lot of the things he said, but um, this, I, he, he was, he got there. He got to the point where he said, yes, I'm sitting here with this wax and there's an experience of it. I'm experiencing and there's no question God can't deceive me into thinking that I'm thinking. The thinking is happening. Now, I may not actually be sitting in this room with this candle and the wax, but there's a perception of that, and that perception is there. I'm not thinking I'm perceiving. I'm not just being deluded into thinking that I'm thinking. That's not possible. That's not real. What's real is the experience. And that makes it highly um, beneficial or highly useful for our purposes. Because now we're learning, when we focus on this, and if we can focus on this world, this nature, Sankara Loka, the world of formations, then we can start to understand what's really going on. We can see what's really going on when, when uh, a person knocks at our window. We can see what's really going on when I can't sleep at night. We can see what's really going on when I have depression, when I'm angry, when I'm addicted to something. There's so much to see there. You start to see that I was just looking at it all wrong. I actually thought that thing was going to make me happy. I thought, hey, I'll cling to this. That was good. I never realized how meaningless this all was. I never, I, I, I see now how these conceptions I had were blinding me to what was really going on. That if instead of 
uh, I'm sorry to pick on you with this window thing, but it's a good, just a good example. I'm not trying to pick on you or say something that obviously it's just it's fresh and it's a good example. Um, what's going on uh, with the sound and the fear? And as you progress in meditation, you can see that actually you say to yourself, hearing, hearing, and oh, I didn't get afraid. I mean, that's an extreme example. It's probably a tough one. But I remember after finishing our, our foundation course, it was just just re reeling at, at how, how, I mean, just a little bit stunned by how changed our perception of things were. And I went with this other meditator who had also finished the course. And we went into the city and we sat down. It's just a silly story. We sat down at the this cafeteria to have coffee, of all things. And uh, we had the, we're sitting at the coffee. And suddenly this, right near us, this tray of glasses, I think it was, tray of glass. Suddenly you hear this noise, smash, big noise. We had this sort of perception of everyone in the restaurant and the cafeteria going like this except us, neither one of us moved. It was just another experience. I mean, we had been dealing with roosters at 3 a.m. We had been dealing with people coming to our, our, knocking on our doors and crazy situations in monasteries and lots of different things and noises. And I was dealing with a clock that kept ticking and it was ticking in time with my walking step and so on. The things we had dealt with, just staying in the room, some cups smashing on the floor was not going to impress us. It was just hearing, hearing. I mean, we were much, you might, you might uh, boast that we were much more in tune with, with the experience. And by being just aware of the experience, I mean, there was no benefit to getting afraid or, or shocked at the at the smashed glasses. We'd learned that through our practice. And so we didn't. We, we were mindful enough. And, and we both looked up at each other and smiled. <laughs> and we said, yep. We got it. We both got it that we were, we had benefited in that way. You see that it start to see so many things. When you look at reality, I mean, I can't really go through. I, this isn't something I can, I'm going to stop the talk here because this is where meditation starts. Uh, what I want to impress upon you is this is where your focus uh, shifts. You, you come into focus. It's like focus uh, lens where it was blurry before because space and so on and atoms and so on it's blurry they can be as precise as they want and look at how slippery it is it's always just out of the grasp you say i've figured out the universe yeah but okay from a physical point of view what's outside of that or so on okay we can go back in time to the beginning of the big bang oh wait what was before that i don't really know was there a before breaks down 
You can go down to the subatomic particles. What's below that? We don't really know. In beings, beings, of course, are even fuzzier, blurrier. A being is such a gross person. Describe this person or that person. It's such a gross explanation of reality to describe a person. It's like a picture describing a person. All you have is a snapshot. When you start to look at reality, you start to understand how you've gone wrong. That we suffer only because we've misunderstood and uh, lacked understanding. So there's misunderstanding where we conceive A to be B or A to be not A or not A to be A. Something to be something other than it is. And then there's also lacking of understanding where we just didn't know. I didn't know that was harmful. I didn't know that was causing me suffering. I didn't realize that. And you solve these, these problems by the right focus, by focusing on the right world, by focusing on the world in the right way having the right paradigm. This is where I get this. It's not just something that this crazy monk came up with. It's very deeply rooted, I think, from my point of view, in the Buddhist teaching. And this is why we, or this is important for our practice. It's not just sitting down and saying, I'm going to become one with everything, or I'm going to be enlightened. You have to change the way you look at things. And that's this Nama Rupa. Nama doesn't walk. Nama can't walk. Rupa walks. Rupa goes here, Rupa goes there. When you laugh, Rupa laughs. Nama is what knows the experience. Nama is the awareness of it. Anyway, starting to get into that. So that's where meditation practice starts. If anyone is interested in these sorts of things, I really would encourage you to try and take up the practice of meditation. That's all for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in and for coming out. I wish you all the best. <laughs>